All right. Welcome back to this, the 45th episode. 45. I had to confirm that number with Poncho, our producer right now, which is crazy. Uh, that's um, almost, I'm not even that old. I'm almost that old. So <laughs> there's something in my brain there. But yeah, the 45th episode of the Start Well podcast. We're back on King Street in our broadcast studio uh, for this episode, which I am so happy to be joined in studio four uh, with the uh, lovely and magical man in front of me, Rob Damagala. Damagala? Uh, Damagala. There you go, Damagala. You might have to do that again. <laughs> Takes a while for me, man. I was just in Rome a few weeks ago, you know, so I, I become a racist. Well, I'm everybody, like, yeah, Damagala. Everybody wants to do that. You know, I've yeah, just your got, whole life you've I been got, plagued by your Italian heritage. F- well, it's not Italian. That's well, the there thing. you and go. I, it's funny. I had a conversation the other day with um, uh, another chap that I was doing an interview with. Uh, I was fortunate to to chat with, and he's Italian, and and that's how he he led off too. He was like, yeah, "I gotta know, are you right? Are you Italian like I am?" And I'm like, "No, I'm not. I'm actually Polish. It's a Polish name." Mm. And so yeah, apparently, uh, those who are more fluent in 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 Polish culture and language than than I am. Uh, they easily identify it, okay, uh, which is amazing. So, so there you go. You won't hear it too often. I'm You're happy like... to be Italian today for you, Chasm, and, and <laughs> happy to join you for this milestone I've for just 45th podcast. Elevated your Polish Mr. Smith status. <laughs> um, regardless, I'm I'm sorry I messed up your name. That's okay. One more time, please. Domagala. Domagala. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure too. Great to see you again. So, Great to be in the space. Yeah, and it's so funny. So for our audience, uh, a little bit of back history is we know each other through uh, uh, the company that you were with before your current position, which we'll be talking mostly perhaps about in this conversation, a company called TWG. TWG was a, what would you say TWG was? The Working Group is what it's an acronym for. Yeah, it, it was called The Working Group, and there was a reason for that. Uh, that actually predated predated me joining the company, but... Um, uh, TWG was a software studio. It was, you know, and I'm, I'm confident in saying it was probably one of Toronto's or even Canada's, you know, like most successful uh, modern software design development strategy agencies. Um, and um, and you know, had a fantastic run helping to grow that business and, and, and building the team there and working and learning from a lot of great people at TWG. And that's, that's exactly how we met. Right. And, uh, and how we go back. And then our friends at Deloitte acquired that company. Yep. And after that, a little ways down the road, you found yourself in the pandemic. Yeah, just like everybody. Well, I guess the pandemic was in full swing. And then uh, last March, uh, TWG was acquired uh, by Deloitte uh, to become part of um, part of the product uh, design and strategy and development org there. Again, you know, a very, a very, uh, uh, a potent combination of of strategists, consultants, you know, product designers, and and things like that, and uh, uh, that was around the nine and a half year uh, mark in my You'd tenure with TWG year. as well. Yeah, exactly. It had been a long growth journey. I joined in 2012. I think I was employee number 12 at TWG, and um, you know, businesses were just starting to think about you know digital transformation in an extremely nascent way back in 2012, and and you had you know, I mean, geez, back then Shopify had only just raised its B round, you know, like it was early days in a lot of the industry that's accelerated so rapidly. And oh, so, yeah. And so, yeah, uh, TWG became part of Deloitte. And, you know, um, I think a lot of people there are doing a lot of great work still. 
Um, and then, so Return Bear is where you are now. What's uh, what 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 attracted you to this? Company? Yeah, no, that, that's that's a great question. Uh, again, after nine and a half years uh, working with the folks at TWG, which was which was again I say like transformative for me, and I think for a lot of other other people, uh, you know, we had been building a lot of software products and customer experiences, user experiences, front end, back end, mm-hmm. uh, for so many different businesses, like startups, uh, like Wellsimple, uh, and and uh, uh, you know CoinSquare and other emerging companies, and then also helping traditional uh, enterprises make some of those pivots into more you know uh, a more software driven culture, a more you know design driven culture, and things like that. And so, um, variety was the spice of life for a great deal of that time. You know, getting to work on fintech, you know, telco, e commerce, you know, fashion. Uh, and just keep looping through this these really interesting ebbs and flows and categories. Yeah. Um, but you know, coinciding with that uh, merger with Deloitte, um, I thought you know my next learning opportunity would be would be focused uh, focused at a product company. You know, we had been building so many businesses. Right. I had seen so many interesting ideas come in from a founder or from a small a small team uh, that was just like trying to get their MVP developed or um, or getting just post MVP and needing the the, the lift, the sort mm-hmm. of collaborative lift that we were able to bring to them. And um, and uh, I decided I wanted to go deep. In that respect, too, like you know, shift from consulting to like the application of those skills, day in and day out, you know, mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. one brand, one team, trying to build one great thing. Um, and uh, you know, that's one of the downsides of consulting is you know, you 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 go in for a bit and then you decouple and you oh, know man. you you learn something else and you it's decouple. Horrible. But you don't get to you don't get to nurture those relationships or those products, you know, in perpetuity, right? Yeah. And maybe maybe, you know, for some protracted amount of time, but your purpose is to help pump that innovation into the other org's DNA. Your purpose is to help stand them up. Your purpose is to help them build teams. Uh, even build culture, you know, in some cases. And and so, but then you don't get to do that for yourself, for their product. And I got attached to yeah, a lot of these tough. products. So it's tough. You, it takes, it's like, it takes 24 months to, to get your client pregnant and then you don't get to hear the word Papa ever. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So that's a, that's a, a great analogy. So, uh, so yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to focus, uh, uh, you know, sort of the next leg of my, my professional development uh, in the product space. And then, you know, the last few years, uh, that I was at TWG, I was also lucky enough to to be leading the development of the um, sort of the branding and e-commerce side of the business. And so uh, we were a Shopify Plus agency partner. We started to try to contribute to like again like the the, the ever growing wave of demand uh, from both established and new brands that mm-hmm. were that were trying to connect with customers um, uh, through through e-com. Uh, and that was a function that we we didn't really have at TWG when I joined. So uh, the last few years, I did a lot of work mm. uh, with e-commerce brands across all sorts of different categories. And and you know I'm pretty passionate about the customer experience. And so when the opportunity to join Return Bear came up, uh, I sort of could instantly uh, empathize with the the consumer and merchant pain point that it was trying to solve, uh, as well as the environmental uh, opportunities for positive impact. And um, uh, and then also it's e-com 
adjacent or that's actually it is an e-com adjacent it's like it's very critical to, yeah. to the e-com function for any brand and so uh so it felt like a really natural fit uh, and i was able to uh, i was able to join the team close to a year ago uh and and you know i'm heads down working on that since so let's okay so tell me a little bit i, I have my own kind of assumptions about what return bear does uh but they're they're very shallow so return bear you help companies solve their problems with customer product returns? Yeah, exactly. So, okay. uh, you know, imagine this. You know, Shopify democratizes the accessibility to e-com technology for so many companies. And we see we see on, on that stack, but also on other platforms, like new brands emerging in a way in the last five years that they couldn't 15 years ago or 10 right. years ago, right? right. Um, and so there's more commerce happening online. There's still lots of commerce happening offline and brick and mortar experiences and on the high street, right? Um, but these this growing class of challenger brands and the online ecosystem in particular, mm -hmm. they don't have real-world physical touch points to, uh, uh, to engage with their customers. And one of the most sort of critical moments in the customer journey is that moment of anxiety where you accidentally got sent the wrong size. Uh, mm. You ordered the large and they sent you the medium. And that's an accident that can happen. Or the product comes damaged. Yeah. Again, these are these are natural things that happen. Or It's just... very rare that you actually get something better than you ordered. <laughs> yeah. That actually happened this week. My wife ordered a bunch of stuff from Desigual. Okay. A clothing label, and they all they closed all their stores retail. Had fifty percent store, you know, discounts all over the world. We saw we were in Rome a few weeks ago, and we saw this store was going out of business. And we didn't have time because we had to get an ice cream across the road with my daughter, <laughs> and the store closed. And I was like, "You just buy it online. I'm sure it's online." She did a bunch of shopping online. Got this massive box. Very excited. Everything came out of the box on the floor in the living room, and there was this massive blue winter jacket. Okay, now it wasn't necessarily better, but it was probably 10 times the price of the like shirt that she ordered, you know? So that was one pleasant surprise, but it's never otherwise happened. And it's certainly not from, um, you know, people like Amazon, at least for us. We order a lot from Amazon. We, we never get mistakes. Yeah, I mean, so these things happen anyways, right? And so, and so the, you know, the, the customer has a pain point in that journey where they're consuming more with these brands that don't have physical solutions and so they're being asked to necessarily like print more shipping labels repack items um, take them to Canada Post you know maybe wait in line at a shopper's drug mart uh, and then wait with some amount of ambiguity there's this big pregnant pause mm. when you're waiting for your your package to go from British Columbia back to Atlanta Georgia to some fulfillment center um, and you've exchanged value Mm -hmm. Right. You mm -hmm. made that purchase. You, you spent a couple hundred dollars potentially on some items. And for whatever reason, and, and it's not necessarily the brand's fault, something just didn't work out. Uh, but the customer is left sort of carrying like the, the delay and, and, and in many cases carrying the cost of like the return shipping good to, to finally realize their value. And, and so in Canada, this is, you know, like this is a challenge for, for all sorts of brands, of course, um, because our geography is vast. Our population density is, is, is spread so thinly across the major metros. Um, and, and no one, you know, to the best of our knowledge has yet, you know, uh, wanted to try to fill that white space with some sort mm. of, uh, you know, uh, new or better options. And so, you know, the problem that we're trying to solve is, is sort of has, you know, we look at it through three lenses. We're trying to make online returns 
Uh, and maybe in the future, physical retail returns too, if you're not close to the store from whence you know you purchase the products. But you know, we're trying to make those online returns more convenient for customers. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but I did all my my, my orders used to come to the office. My mm-hmm. my my return label printing used to happen on the office printer, uh, and there was a post office like pretty close to the office. It was easy for me to get to these things. Now, now no as office. a customer, like I don't have a printer. Like the, yeah. every time I buy one. I use it for a bit, the ink dries up, and then I, I, I recycle it or something. So, you know, you have to ask the neighbor to print a shipping label for you now. You know, maybe you were a little too keen and you throw out, threw out the packaging oh, uh, on so recycling day. And, yeah. and so, and I've, so, I've got a $200 pair of shoes sitting in my office right now. Wait, what foot size are you? Uh, I'm probably, well, it depends, an 11, a 12, and this is the problem. Like, you depends don't know. on the shoes. Right? Yeah, that's just it. You don't know, right? As a consumer, you don't know. So we want to make, yeah. yeah, we want to make it easier for you to, to, to make that return. Yeah. Uh, and in doing so, you know, actually have a better experience with that brand. You know, it should be convenient for you. You should have more choices. So right. as a Canadian, you should be able to do those mail-ins, of course. Or you should have, you know, uh, these new options like package and label free drop offs. And that's something that didn't exist in Canada until we started to roll it out. Um, uh, but we've seen in other markets. Wait, 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 rewind. What's that? Package and label free drop off. Right. So, so I, got, I got my shoes. I threw out the Cole Han box, you know, because I was so excited. And then they were the wrong, you know, size. So I would take it to a return bear place and just like put them in a box. Well, so if Cole Hahn was was a return bear customer, if Cole Hahn was using our services, then you as their customer, should you go to do a return, you would have seen an option in your, you know, in their return policy to do a drop off return at one of our locations. And so if you select that uh, as the customer, when you request that, uh, that return, we'll give you a QR code, you'll bring those shoes at your convenience, preferably with the box, though, mm-hmm. to be clear, mm-hmm. I don't want to make promises I can't keep. Um, but you'll bring those shoes to our drop off location at the Eaton Center, for example, or up at Fairview or in Sherway Gardens, whatever's closest to you. Yeah, shopping uh, malls for a non Toronto audience. Yeah, exactly. And uh, far beyond the shopping mall in short order, I assure you. But, um, you know, you'll bring that with your uh, QR code that we're going to email to you. Uh, to uh, to our kiosk in one of these locations, uh, and the staff at the kiosk will scan your QR code. They'll confirm that there's these two Kohlhan size tens that you've got, um, and they'll do uh, you know quick visual QA to make sure they clearly haven't been worn out. You know they're not covered in dirt and grime, and we'll we'll collect them from you. We'll approve your return on the spot, and you can walk away knowing that it's taken care of. So we've removed that ambiguity in theory, uh, and we've met you ideally where you are on your lunch break. We've met you while you were doing birthday shopping for your dog at the mall uh, and we've given you a new way to just take care of that problem so those shoes don't just sit here and you eat the loss yeah is that um okay so it's just really cool and and i got a number of questions for you okay the first thing is uh okay so return bears a startup yes meaning that how old is the company uh the company was you know Incubated as an idea by a venture accelerator called Koru um, that works with uh, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, okay. uh, and and the re- idea for Return Bear was was sort of dreamed up through through partnership between Koru and Cadillac Fairview and OTPP about. So that's a kind of a REIT, right? Cadillac Fairview are they technically a REIT or are uh, they? I, I'm not sure. So is it real for for all all our listeners who are kind of again um, foreigners or or unfamiliar with commercial real estate? Cadillac Fairview is a massive company uh, that owns across Canada and also I think in the states a lot of uh, real estate that is uh, commercial real estate geared for retail. So shopping malls, particularly some high state high street properties, strip malls, stuff like that. Uh, they've also done 
developments from what I know in terms of mixed use and some residential perhaps. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. They own and operate most of the sort of premier uh, malls and the major uh, major urban centers in, in Toronto, for example. And I mean, whether they're technically uh, a REIT, uh, I'm, I'm honestly not yeah, the right yeah. person to ask about that, but they're uh, they're a great partner uh, uh, for us at Return Bear. And, uh, and so about a year and a half ago, like the, the idea for filling this white space in Canada, uh, to begin with anyways, um, was dreamed up. And uh, and then you know the the company like properly launched came to market around uh, October, so almost a year ago, um, and uh, and we're f- you know full steam ahead since then. Nice. So notable clients that you can mention, like uh, what kind of brands or retailers are you working with? Are there distributors as well? Yeah, I mean primarily this is this is right now at this stage working with brands that are selling direct to their their consumer, in particular e-com, right? Mm-hmm. So you know we're managing work- their own stores. Exactly. And and the online store is their is their primary store. That's their primary location. They may not have yet opened up a brick and mortar store on Queen Street or something like that. So mm-hmm. we're working with uh, a few really interesting scaling Canadian brands. Uh, some women wear uh, a women's wear brand called Numi, for example, who's just seen continued growth the last couple of years. Um, another lovely uh, uh, men's and women's brand called Frank. Um, we're working with international uh, brands that that need to solve this problem for their Canadian customers. Um, K Swiss shoes, for example, Palladium boots. Um, K Swiss, yeah, K Swiss. Back is, in the day, I remember that. Oh, absolutely, but it can be today for you as well, Chasm. So, yeah. uh, so if you you know if you buy a pair of K Swiss shoes in Canada and this happen, you happen to get the wrong size, you can absolutely absolutely use uh, use our return method to just make life a little bit easier for yourself. And Wise up, Cole Han. K Swiss is eating your lunch. That's what that's that's what we hope for all of our brands, <laughs> of course. Uh, and uh, and we're exploring some really some really exciting uh, you know like bigger enterprise relationships, but. Um, we want to make this level of returns and reverse logistics accessible to more brands, though, too, right? And so, like, you know, historically, um, you know, warehousing is extremely, like, cumbersome and complex and it's expensive. And the amount of real estate that, you know, you need as a 3PL to operate on behalf of brands or as a brand, if you want to own your own facility, like, you have to nightmare. huge footprints. Uh, and logistics is really complicated. And again, Canada doesn't make it any easier just by the nature of our geography and our population spread. And so um, we want to make this sort of robust reverse logistics that maybe only like a Zara or an H&M would have had access to in the, uh, in, in the sort of current world order. We want to make that accessible to brands that are even just getting started. Mm. Even if they're dealing with two or three returns, they're offering as robust and convenient a policy as possible to win customer trust at checkout and to to drive more sales and loyalty and so uh you know we're trying to ensure that we work with like a really exciting spread uh of brands helping smaller brands grow and helping bigger brands adjust to like the the pain point of growing volumes so you guys take all this product through your distribution network you sort it and pack it and warehouse it for redistribution back to the suppliers yeah exactly so in a nutshell that's what happens uh brand starts working with us we'll take receipt of all of their mail-in returns because that's still the understood the most widely understood return paradigm in canada right now if you order online you probably have to mail it back in that's the 
consumer expectation. We're trying to shift that, of course. Um, but we'll, we'll receive all of those mail-ins at one of our processing centers. We'll also obviously receive that growing amount of drop-off returns at our drop-off kiosks, and we collect those on a regular basis and bring them back to the same processing centers. And then we're purpose-built to deal with the returns. So no longer do these packages sort of wait at the back door of the warehouse or the 3PL that's prioritizing all of the outbound supply, which makes sense. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Yeah. Like, okay, if you take a kind of like a, a 10,000 foot view of the e-commerce fulfillment landscape in Canada, because that's where you guys are operating, um, why is it not feasible for um, no matter what scale you are, but for your kind of like product supply chain or, or fulfillment operator uh, to also handle returns? Well, it is feasible. I, I'm not going to pretend that it isn't. And some some 3PLs will do, uh, uh, will do or at least claim to do the return processing as well. But What does 3PL stand for? Oh, uh, pick, pack, and something else. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm, as you can see, I'm still I'm still learning about beware the jargon. Beware yeah. the jargon, my friend. Um, uh, pick, pack, and post, I believe. Right. So uh, a three PL would be where uh, you know you and me when we start our new start well swag line and things like that. If we don't want to warehouse it here in your lovely studio, we don't yeah. want to deal with shipping out the orders as they come. Yeah. We will uh, establish a relationship with. Uh, a 3PL third-party logistics, sure. uh, pick, pack, post type order of thing. Order fulfillment company. An order yeah. fulfillment company, and they will take our supply, and they will follow our operating procedures, and they will uh, you know, grab the items off the shelf and send it to the, the customer that does the order. And again, yes, yeah, some of them will also take the returns. But when you think about like the idea of starting a brand or, or selling to a customer, you start with that thought. I'm selling to a customer. Mm -hmm. You don't start from the opposite direction. You don't start like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to deal with stuff coming back, you know, mm -hmm. uh, from the customer. And so, you know, I, I would say, you know, from my perspective, and again, I haven't been, I've been in software and product design and branding for the last 12 years. I haven't yeah. been in logistics to be very transparent. Um, but, you know, abstracting myself from that, looking, looking at that thousand foot view, like you said, uh, it stands to reason that these, these, uh, more traditional operators, uh, established businesses to take product and get it out the door, right? That is the current MO. And that's the that's the bigger volume here, right? This is the thing that people don't realize is that from an operator, from a, from a, a store operator perspective or a CPG, not a CPG because that's packaged goods, but whatever, if you're selling shit to people, um, you're, you, you kind of definitely are focused on sales and it's only really, I think, in the last five years that returns have become a necessary consideration for managing the relationships with your customers. Because a lot of this, especially in the last two years, uh, buying mentality and the freedom of purchase as promoted by uh, programs like Amazon Prime and the no-fee returns policies that companies have had to kind of like undertake have kind of shifted, at least here in North America. So for, for anyone's watching this, listening to this elsewhere, where these sorts of like the logistics for the supply chain are less robust and uh, cities have less access, you know, than here, even though Canada's a big company, a uh, country, you know, our infrastructure is pretty good. So it's unique in 
this try before you buy mentality. Like before we turned on the cameras today, I was talking about how Startwell Studios embraced black magic in the last little while. And the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars that we spent on studio equipment across campus in the last couple of years uh, never was purchased with this, oh no, it has to work for our purpose. And if it doesn't work, we can't return it. And we're locked into it, you know, which, which was just a few years ago. That was the mentality. It's like you buy something, you got to use it if it's a functional product, you know? So it's very interesting for me to, to see the kind of try before you buy uh, mentality being enabled by e-commerce um, transcend from kind of like residential retail up to commercial as well, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's a fascinating thing because yes, now the responsibility on facilitating returns as part of the purchase flow is going to be larger than ever. Yeah, of course. I mean, the reality is the consumer expectation has changed, but what what is what is driving that is like the consumer possibility has changed, right? So, you know, you used to have to go to the mall and you used to have to do a brick and mortar shop, and so that inherently included like touching things, trying them on, making decisions like that. And so I think everybody you know, five, 10 years ago, uh, as e-com started to become more and more impactful and, and ubiquitous, uh, everybody was okay at first with like some of the inherent, you know, unknowns and the risk in that. It was exciting to try shopping these new brands, you know, it was exciting to get a box of of curated products. You don't even know what's going to come, you know, and, and you had a little bit more, I suspect, customer patience with a new process. But now, we, you know, when we take out our wallet, like we're willing to put just as much money down that e-com channel as we are at a Club Monaco store in the Eaton Center, for example. And so we start to, to look for parity in the experiences. Um, and, and, you know, so that's why, you know, brick and mortar wants to find ways to be as like fast and timely and, and techno- technologically empowered to keep up with e-com. But e-com now needs to think about things like try before you buy, more optionality um, and, and added conveniences to convey, you know, this product story that, you know, uh, that has to happen exclusively digitally, right? You don't get a chance to try the thing on or feel it or see it, smell it, right? And so, um, and so you need to look for tools to at least enable uh, the closure of the gap between those, those uh, offline and online worlds, right? And again, that's part of the reason for our existence. It's super interesting that your kind of patron uh, partner is Cadillac Fairview, uh, the kind of landlord of shopping malls for some of the brands that I would assume would become customers of you because has Cadillac Fairview promoted the use of return bearer amongst its retail customers, its retail tenants, uh, is a means of streamlining their retail operations? Absolutely. Uh, so CF's been a great partner for us to launch with um, and, and a strong supporter of ours. Um, you know, you can, you can imagine, though, um, a traditional brick-and-mortar retailer has like a in many cases, has a preconceived notion of what their relationship with their customer through the journey should be. And so some of them have done a really good job of like acknowledging that digital orders are part of that experience and enabling like swift return of them to physical locations. Um, and so if you're a brand that that can do that well, that take online orders back in a, a, your brick and mortar location. Yeah, um, buy it online, take it to the store to return If it. you have to. Yeah. Some of them can't can't handle that because of the way inventory is allocated or processed or or the the you know the differences between uh, uh, assortment even between brick and mortar and online a lot of brands that have gotten to know their customers online really well will actually promote different product lines will have online exclusives and then when those start showing up in stores 
you know, it can be an ordeal to, you know, you know, get it from right. one store all the way back to a national, like a sorting hub to get it back to the online inventory um, in a meaningful way so that that product doesn't get orphaned on a rack in store that, that doesn't have a true place for it or a purpose for it. Right? Even if, even if they've got their system super tight and the brand experience is like programmed to be synonymous between the e-com and the retail experience because retail is necessarily involving people and things you can touch and feel and store hours. You know, if you bought something with the freedom of sitting on your toilet and ordering it, and then you have to go and wait. And this happened to me. I wasn't on the toilet when I ordered it. Okay. I was in my office, but like I ordered, I don't know, like $5,000 of Apple computer products. Okay. The other day. And then it was like, shit, I didn't look at it properly. I got the wrong power plugs for all our laptops and I got this and I wanted this. And so I was like, okay, a bunch of returns. Now I can, I forget what the flow was for returning it, but the courier option was a terrible one. It was like, I had to pay money out of my pocket or I had to do, go on a little journey and if i'm going on a journey i'm going to go to the store mm -hmm. you know so i took all this stuff carried a box over to the eaton center i went to the apple store had to wait for like half an hour for like you know jim or whoever to come and meet me over at that table over there meanwhile jim went on break four other people came to try and help me no one knew anything and their my relationship with that brand suffered because I was sitting there as a customer who's already spent thousands of dollars in their retail shop thinking this is way worse than online and totally the opposite of my purchase experience. Mm -hmm. And yet Apple's got all the logistics and the like digital systems to be able to just take that thing back from me, scan the code. They just couldn't have the person who knew how to do that. Yeah. Even though they had so many staff on the floor. Like, you know, that was one of those experiences where retail can frustrate a digital Well, consumer. that's a great point because the staff on the floor, and we, I think we can all agree, like Apple typically does an extraordinary job of this too, right? The staff on the floor is, is, is trained uh, and educated and optimized for that in-store transaction. And again, so what you did is you, you threw a wrench into that plan. Um, and you see this in big department stores. Okay, wait, I'm going to flip this. Yeah. Let me flip it on you, okay? It goes two ways. Because... I took that stuff. You're right. They weren't necessarily adept in figuring out how to handle the kind of like digital purchase. But then it got even more interesting. And I think part of that is also because Apple particularly trains its staff in store on like the two main use cases and their assumptive customer profile is a first time customer. And whether that means first time per SKU or first time per brand, mm -hmm. It's always first time. So if you come in and you're like, yeah, I know all this stuff. Don't teach me. Don't, do not teach me right now. I just want to buy this thing. You realize the Apple store is not a store, right? It's like a brand experience center. And that's why they have the education. I was literally, while I was there, they have their little amphitheater, you know, where people are teaching people things because they've replaced or moved the Genius Bar. And now it's like, you know, ooh, the, you can learn things there. Mm -hmm. And they have drop-in classes. To the point where there was someone giving a lecture on how to do a particular thing on your iPhone with absolutely no one in the class, but he had to fill his slot as a staff member. So he's teaching and really creating noise for the whole store. No one can focus because this guy's teaching you how to swipe left on your iPhone and no one cares. No one's paying attention, but he had to teach his class and look engaged, you know, cause it's probably being recorded. I don't know. So that was happening. And then at the same time, I decided on a whim, oh, you know what? The screen that we're editing footage on in this one editing bay here on at Startwell uh, is terrible. 
you know, we need to replace it. So look, I'm going to lay down how many thousands of dollars is it for the new ProRes whatever monitor. Uh, I'll either buy an iMac for my editor or I'm going to buy that screen. So I told the, the salesperson when they finally came or the customer support person, I want to buy one of those things. And they told me the funniest thing. They were like, we start going through color selection. I'm like, I don't care. Just give me what you have in stock. I don't care if it's blue or black. Just give it to me. It's for the office, man. You know, it's not for my daughter or something. <laughs> and then he goes through each color to check availability. And then finally he's like, oh, there's none of those available. And I'm like, here in the store or like in the world? Like, can we just use your thing or can I use my phone right now to order it online? Now that I'm in your retail experience, can I just use the web? And he said, yeah, it's always easier with Apple products to order them through the website hmm. than it is to order them in the store. Because get this, due to supply chain issues with the pandemic, <laughs> our store at the Eaton Center is not stocking any product outside of the small consumer goods stuff that flies off the shelf. Uh, okay. So I'm like, okay, well, I don't. how do I know that as a customer, right? The assumption, so this is my point, aside from the fun anecdotes, the point is also the assumption as a consumer that the catalog of products on offer online is the same as in retail is a very real assumption, you know, and it goes two ways too. You're in a retail, you think I can just go home. <coughs> Gesundheit. Excuse me. I, you think I could just go home and buy it, you know, like I saw it, but often cases, retailers are not setting up their shops as showrooms. Some are, some are hip to the scene and they're like, look, we don't really want to deal with the mechanics of transaction because it's cumbersome. Um, in or out of the store. But if people come and experience the product firsthand, then they can order 10 times as much product at their convenience, but they'll have they'll know what they're buying. Um, so some brands are doing that, right? Yeah, I think you know that model is certainly like an interesting one. The the human factor that it, I think it does miss though, even though it can be the right the right solution is it, it almost makes you feel like you're car shopping. Like rarely do you get to drive a car off the lot. You have to order and wait six months or if you're ordering an electric vehicle, who even knows when you're getting it because the chips don't exist anymore. But you know, one of the joys of shopping is the, uh, you tell me whether it's serotonin or whatever, but the rush you get from like handing over your money and leaving with the bag with the thing in it. Like I want to go, if I'm going to buy a new computer, I want to go home and then play with it. I want to set it up. I want it to be clean and crisp. I really don't want to have to wait three weeks. So I might as well just, it's personal opinion. I might yeah, as well just yeah. do that from my desk at home uh, rather than be teased. However, there's a huge benefit to that showroom experience where you do maybe especially with higher ticket items, you get to understand what's going on. You acknowledge their current supply chain, you know, problems. Uh, and then, you know, a week later or five days later or two days later, hopefully, you know, as quick as they can, you do get the gratification of, of receipt of your product. Um, but, um, but no, that's a, that's a super interesting anecdote. And, you know, some, some, uh, uh some of the brands, you know, that are, that are traditional in mall retailers that, uh, um, uh, that sell, you know, in, in, in the malls that Cadillac Fairview operates, um, you know, see the potential in having an alternate overflow for those returns. Sometimes it's driven by like, you know, this discrepancy between assortment and the true ability to accurately reconcile an online return to the in-store environment. Mm. In other cases, it's seen as a customer service win where return traffic can be pointed nearby, but outside of the store potentially. Um, and 
all of the throughput of the in-store traffic can be optimized for serving like the customer that's ready to transact. So, you know, in a scenario that plays out like that, I don't get stuck behind two cumbersome returns online where they can't reconcile the online order with, uh, you know, with the in-store inventory or the process to do that. And I'm just trying to buy my shirt. I want to get out from behind these people. Um, I, you know, uh, those returns might be able to go to one of our kiosks, right? Um, You know, but then, you know, the discerning brand might say, but I've lost that return foot traffic. Now I sort of, I don't Mm. want them to get in the way of, that's interesting. I don't want them to get in the way of uh, those consumers who who uh, my associates are working with, who need to check out. Um, but at the same time, I am sort of precious. Every every bit of foot traffic is important. Every opportunity to re-engage customers is important. And I think you know we're exploring some some unique you know some unique ways to uh, you know see the realize that you know maybe the drop off return happening elsewhere, um, but calls to action and and unique incentives to then drive an active purchase now that the return has been solved. You know, so get that traffic back to the store. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, certain types of retailers may. Uh see benefit if the service was offered and having an integrated experience for return bear yeah. in store, right? There's like a, well, exactly. e- like at the Hudson's Bay company or something, there's return bear handles, all returns for that store. Yeah. So scenarios like that yeah. would be amazing. You know, we'd love to, we'd love to work with some partners like that where they do have this challenge between, um, uh, between like, you know, the convergence of online orders and like the offline, uh, offline return environments. Um, and certainly our software is set up and, you know, you know, you're getting ahead of us, but like we're, we're exploring these sorts of relationships where, uh, our technology can be used in the traditional brick and mortar environment to create that alternate line, so to speak, uh, and very quickly, uh, handle returns, uh, you know, in a, in a faster manner. But let me just jump yeah, in yeah, with yeah. one more point that's clearly you know, important to make, right. Is, is that you know Cadillac Fairview too? Uh, again, as a mall operator, like we'll always have tenants in their environments, whether they're full-time tenants or seasonal pop-up tenants. There's there continues to be unique experiences to, you know, in line in a mall hallway engage with customers, and so. Um, online brands that don't have a physical footprint like have no way to like very quickly solve this problem for you and so that's why we see you know uh, more immediate adoption amongst like this emerging uh, d2c brand uh, but it's it's an opportunity for new foot traffic to come into these drop-off locations right sure. and so yeah. all of a sudden you know where there's no uh, there's no k swiss store in line uh, uh, at fairview mall in toronto uh, that case with customer that return might still end up uh, in in the in the mall in the store ready to engage in that environment, right? And so I think as our drop off network grows and new partners come on board, there's a there's a great opportunity for um, for other businesses to start having these these relationships with with customers that they they didn't have before and find ways to um, you know make that return journey uh, part of their brand development too and so we're you know we're excited to grow the network and, and you know sort of push that sort of traffic to some of the new brand partners or the new network partners we'll have in the future uh, what about the warehousing side of the story so I could see benefit to return bear partnering with the order fulfillment companies to say yo you got the square footage you're probably dropping the ball in a few things to do with the return side of the business. Why don't we co-locate and partner? Yeah, I think that's that's a smart idea. Um, we're having conversations like that, of course. Currently, you know, uh, we have our own processing hubs, and we're trying to do this in a true startup fashion. Uh, you know, we're we're part 
software company, right? We have a lot of technology that powers the various you know elements of the customer journey, of course, like from online return handling or return request to uh, you know the the merchant's back office to our drop off applications and 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 things like that. Um, but uh, we're also a logistics business, right? So we handle products. They come to us. We open packages. We uh, solve the customer uh, problem. You know, trigger the the response the customer wanted, whether it was the exchange, the store credit, or the refund. Uh, and then we repack, we refold, we retag, we prepare ready to sell inventory. So we sort of straddle both worlds. And so um, applying startup thinking to this, you know, and maybe some leaner thinking uh, uh, than than has been done in the in the category in the pa- uh, in the past. Well, we're trying to to really you know create. A logistics laboratory, almost, which sounds a little cliche or cheesy, but instead of going out with you know max, I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, max square footage, uh, and and you know huge football stadium warehouses. We're trying to optimize our throughput, you know, per square foot in like the smallest amount of space. So, possible. what are the typical sizes of your of your? What did you call them? Not three PL. Uh, That's not a hub, you. A processing hub. You're processing, processing hub. So yeah, how big are they typically? Yeah, you know, um, when we were just getting started, we were trying to see how much volume we could do out of 300 square feet using our technology. Uh, you know, and we're we're expanding and growing. Um, but what we believe but it has to be retail, right? Well, no, the processing hub is behind the scenes, right? That's that's where we do our work with these packages. Yeah, a, a drop off kiosk. Is, no, no, I'm is talking about processing. Experience. Well, yeah. So exactly. So I mean, again, processing. Remember, mail-in orders from brands are coming to us, and we again we open them, we solve the customer pain point, and we prepare those items so that when the brand gets them back, it's received goods. It's no longer a return. They don't have to fiddle with it anymore. They can scan it right back mm-hmm. into their inventory, uh, and then as we recover the items that have been dropped off, we do the same thing again at at, at a processing hub. Um, and so our idea is how little space can we use to process the max amount of items? How long should we collect items before batching them back to brands? And we're really working on this recipe. Uh, the idea is let's start from as little space as we can and then expand as required, as opposed to making you know uh, maybe traditional assumptions about item assortment sizing and the time of disposition, the time of getting it back. And so... We're, you know, we're doing, we're doing, able to do thousands of units in, in 500 square feet. And and are those 500 square feet units at the pickup point places, like in the malls? Uh, They will be. Uh, We currently have an offsite, offsite facility in downtown Toronto. And then our, our plan is to work with uh, Cadillac Fairview to, uh, to actually use space in the malls to do more processing on site. Um, And that's one of the benefits of our partnership with them. Uh, They have a lot of space and it's a great use of some of their, um, uh, some of their physical, uh, physical space as a landlord. And so if we're able to, our thesis, right, is that if we're able to optimize the throughput of items uh, across a smaller footprint, we can distribute more call them micro return processing centers. That's a mouthful. Yeah, yeah. Micro processing hubs <laughs> across the country, right? It's and again, really interesting. Well, yeah. we're talking about the Canadian geography being like really, really hard to 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 set up shop. Like yeah. mailing a package from BC, like with a hoodie, to Toronto, a Toronto warehouse, costs you eighteen twenty dollars if you're the brand or the customer. Um, um, but warehouse space and real estate's super expensive too. So what can we do using a shared network? Whether it's uh, with Cadillac Fairview or as you said, you know, uh, co-locating or partnering with uh, traditional 3PLs, um, but you know, using the idea of, of shared services and a shared network that everybody can benefit from um, so that we can distribute 
processing activities across the country. I get excited, uh, and I think a lot on, on our team get excited about the environmental impact that can come from that too. Um, you know, if every package, you know, right now is warehoused in, in Brampton or in Mississauga or something like that, um, but they're being shipped all the way across the country and then, you know, 10%, 20% are returns. All the way back. They're coming all the way back. Then to go to the next customer, these are huge journeys with with, with a, like, uh, a really brutal carbon footprint over time, right? And, and we all understand that like the more we shop, the bigger an environmental impact this is probably going to have. Um, but if we can have, you know, our little warehouses, our microprocessing centers spread across the country, then, you know, if we have one in Calgary, uh, anything from the Yukon, BC, Alberta, mm -hmm. it can just go straight there. We'll drive down the cost of the mailing label if that's a mail in return. And then uh, if we're if we're gathering, uh, gathering goods from drop off centers in the region, they can stay sort of regional um, and uh, we can save money on those shipping labels and we can reduce their overall journeys. And then when they do need to be consolidated to go somewhere, you know, there's there's the benefits of consolidation to like move them back to a final destination. Yeah. Or there's the opportunity for us to fulfill the next order uh, regionally. Uh, so giving brands access to like a distributed forward fulfillment uh, network without having to like own warehouses. Resale uh, or previously used. Well, not even previously used. Remember, we're going to fully QA that item. Mm -hmm. We're going to repack it in the brand's materials, put it in their recyclable poly bag, reinsert, you know, the... Uh, uh, the 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 branded postcard that goes in with it. Let's just say retag it. It's it goes back to the brand's fulfillment center, uh, ready to sell. It could just go to the next customer potentially. And so all of a sudden, a return product, you know, sold by an American brand in Canada, the warehouses in Pennsylvania. Let's just say doesn't have to be shipped from Pennsylvania to BC, back to Pennsylvania, back to the Montreal customer. It could reside in Canada, hmm. uh, you know, until a point that it is it hasn't been sold, right? And so uh, bringing this sort of distributed network, I think is going to be, you know, one of the one of the, the, the future the future wins in in sort of modern logistics, especially if, if we continue to see growth in, in online uh, online brands emerging, right? Super exciting. I think it's super interesting. Um, Talking real quick, I've got a couple things before we can wrap this up uh, in a nice tidy bundle, this conversation. But uh, the questions I still have are about the differentiation between the seller profiles. You know, like you've got your kind of Etsy style people, maybe people that either they're creating the products or people that have a limited amount of sales. They're just getting started as e-retailers unique products. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got obviously these big people that may have, may or may not have retail presences. Um, dealing with so many different types of, I would think e-commerce platforms, you mentioned Shopify a lot. So I'm thinking that that's probably currently what most people are using to sell. Yeah. Obviously Shopify is ubiquitous, uh, especially amongst emerging brands for sure. So how, like what are the solutions? Is it pretty much, yeah, what are the solutions that you you know your customers were using previously to handle returns? I mean, you still you still see this pattern on probably half of every website you go to. If you go to their if you go to their return policy and they're not like a high street brand, um, you email customer service. Customer service starts a conversation with you, so a very manual process. What's the problem? We sent mm -hmm. you the wrong size. There's uh, you know the strap on the dress is ripped. Can you send us a picture? 
um, and that brand sort of creates on their end a return authorization number or just some record that from this order this product is going to be come back because mm. we had to help Susan with her order issue. The brand, you know, in many cases would manually generate uh, a return shipping label. Sometimes they pay the cost of that return shipping, um, uh, you know, and that's that's how they compete in their category. One of the ways they compete by saying, you know, free shipping, free returns, easy returns, things like that. Um, and then in other cases, it's like, again, uh, it's really expensive to move product around Canada. A lot of brands are still saying, you know, you, the customer, are responsible for the cost of that return. Um, and then, you know, that that shipping label would be, you know, uh, would, would be debited, the cost of it would be debited from the customer's refund or exchange uh, value or something to, to that effect. There's there's all of these different, you know, scenarios, but yeah, it's like, clunky. It's, yeah, it's a manual process. It's a manual process. And then there's, you know, there's other software uh, that's emerged as e-com has grown to um, that, you know, really works on just giving you that shipping label, mm-hmm. which is great. You know, it takes some of that customer service lift away from uh, off the team. And hopefully that growing brand can apply that uh, to other high value activities, whether it's shooting new feature, you know, uh, uh, photos for their product detail yeah, pages, marketing, budgets, marketing yeah. whatever. Uh, and and customer service is, is streamlined by virtue of that self-serve label generation experience. And so, you know, we obviously do that, but the next generation of that is uh, uh, is adding the convenient, like more options to that customer, the lower cost option of doing the drop off return, saving money, uh, and expediting the resolution of, mm-hmm. of the issue because we're we are actually processing those returns. So, uh, you know, even if uh, if we still get a customer to a shipping label because we're purpose built to then uh, handle that return once it gets to us, like all we do is open those packages up and solve the customer problem. They get their confirmations that their return's been processed or their exchange is now on its way faster than they ever have before, even if they're doing mail. In. Um, but then if they do drop off, it's an instant resolution to their, their pain point. And the brand, you know, again, has the product back faster. We'll, we'll handle it, we'll get it ready, and the brand can sell it again before discounting it, ideally. And, you know, they didn't have to, the, neither the customer nor the brand lost a week or 10 days of transit time, and then a couple days of, of you know, like waiting for the warehouse to get around to processing mm-hmm. it, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, traditionally, the, the small brands have to handle this in, in a manual way, or then level, level up to, you know, that automated portal and that label generation. One of the downsides to that, though, of course, and, and, and you know, this stands to reason in in sort of the SaaS space is that, you know, uh, if you're an emerging brand who wants to start using software to to adjudicate that return request, get the customer their label and relieve some of that manual burden from your team or even from yourself, if you're the founder or you're the creator on Etsy, like you said, um, you're often paying a monthly SaaS fee and you're trying to amortize 500 US, uh, you know, a month uh, in for that software uh, against five or 10 returns, you know, and all of a sudden each return is costing you 50 bucks. That doesn't really, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, uh, even though it may enhance the consumer experience and, and convey more trust to a customer who's thinking about checking out. Uh, you're on the hook for these, these yeah. high SaaS cash flow is more important to those yeah. small operators. Yeah, and so because we we you know we provide service you know really end to end across that journey, we're able to to offer our solution in a pay as you go capacity. You know, so uh, if you have no returns but you're using our software, you don't pay a monthly fee. If you have five returns, you pay for those five, and, and you know, and the the, the commensurate you know uh, processing and things like that. And if, as you grow up to more and more, then again, we're just taking on more of that for you. Uh, but your bill is proportional. To 
to your volume. And so, um, and so we're, you know, this is how we're trying to make it more accessible to that smaller, that smaller brand by not handcuffing them to, uh, to a SaaS fee in the hope that they get as ma- enough returns to cover it. Right. Uh, did you ever hear or, or experience this, uh, this brand called consumers distributing? Of course. So was that across Canada? When we were kids, I I would I hope it we was. had in Alberta. I, I thought I didn't know yeah. if it was an Alberta thing. It was here in Ontario. I certainly hope every Canadian from our era um, <laughs> was was able to enjoy, you know, I guess twice a year, maybe every six months, you'd get the consumers distributing catalog <laughs> the catalog in the mail, and then so for for the listeners and and people watching this that that don't know, like. This was the most exciting catalog. It, it was it was color. It had photos. It had all the information about all sorts of different categories of products. Every category imaginable: fashion, yeah. underwear, outdoors, lifestyle, electronics was amazing. The toy section was amazing. Yeah, yeah. But you got you have to tell tell your uh, your your audience here about like the actual shopping experience. So I mean, here I'll take the first part. Uh, yeah, go for we it. We were kids. We would get the consumers distributing catalog in the mail. It at home. would be a yeah. one stop shop for like anything we wanted to see. Every new toy would be in it. It's great, you know, uh, board games. Legos, He-Mans, Transformers. And as a child, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you did this too, you'd grab a pen, uh, you know, and you would start circling everything you wanted. And pages would just be covered in all these circles. But then it was a unique ordering experience. This is where you should catch everybody up. Well, I don't know. You tell me because... Oh, you don't remember? Oh, yeah. I I thought you had to go to the place. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, it's kind of like for Ontarians, this is like, I don't know, no one really does it anymore, it sounds like, but it's like going to the beer store. Yeah, it's like going to the beer store. It was like catalog shopping. So you would take your your book with you. Each item had a code. You would go to a brick and mortar experience, which was really just, it was like walking into the, the beer store or if you haven't been to a beer store. It was like a little in, uh, room with a conveyor belt and a dude at ex- the front. Exactly. Right? Or it's like a bank teller thing. You know, there's a bunch of setups, uh, you know, desks with pens and with little order sheets, you right. know, that you would fill out those small little order sheets and you would indicate like the three item not IDs that you wanted yeah, to order. You'd write down your SKUs. And then you would move to the line, you'd hand that in, and then you'd, you know, you'd walk across to like the receiving queue, and that's where the conveyor belt is. And then after a couple minutes, all of a sudden the CD player that you had wanted would come out and you'd be like, that's mine. And then, you know, and like the, the the Hot Wheels set would come out, and it was it was just thrilling. Um, but it was you know that was the next step from just pure mail order, yeah. right? Mail order was like you know put some stamps on the thing, write those numbers, include a check, right, and then wait until stuff shows up. This was the convergence that is like you know okay we can have stuff piled on pallets in a warehouse, yeah, um, but we can use direct mail to uh, to convey our assortment to the customer. You don't need a shop in the shop you've yep. already shopped you on the catalog the book and then you just came come in and a couple minutes later the stuff comes out of the back i mean it was it was great uh, from <laughs> I what i remember even returns work the same way you just take the thing back there and they say okay cool oh i'm not sure yeah i don't i don't remember that but there was definitely that that excitement of of you know as a kid waiting and then seeing the item come down the conveyor belt it was it was dramatic it was really dramatic it's it's funny it was sort of like how glossier did their new york store in uh uh, in Soho, I think um, you had a beautiful architected experience. Walk in, walk up to it. I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't even know what Glossier is. Uh, 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 online, online, uh, uh, women's beauty brand. You know, mm. or just not women. It doesn't have to be women's. Yeah, it can yeah. be for anybody. But it's a beauty brand. Lip gloss. You know, like eyeliners, creams, makeups. Um, 
uh, and a really powerful challenger brand of the last 10 years in that category. Mm. But uh, the brick and mortar experience was evocative of consumers distributing. You got to sample everything. It was like the showroom you described at Apple, except with stock at the time. And who knows, maybe they've had supply chain issues too. I couldn't tell you. Sure, sure. Um, but you would tell one of the associates your order. You'd pay for it on on their iPad through Square or whatever it was, or at you know little payment terminals near the uh, the near the visual setups. And then you would wait a minute or two on a plush plush settee or something like that and there'd be a team of staff like bagging these orders in these charming branded like Ziploc bags almost and they would instead of a linear conveyor belt they did a really cool like Willy Wonka Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Mm. type of Type of setup. Uh, anybody who's gone to uh, like to Glossier knows. Yeah, it was it was just really cool, and you'd see you the bag of your items like, oh, and then it spits out down some wow. some chute basically, and they call your name out. Um, it, you know, it's it, it's it's amazing, and it's it's a testament, I guess, to like how a brand can be built online, but can still you know connect with customers in what would otherwise be considered a traditional way. And I I think that's an important thing to consider. Like, I don't think there is a. Uh, um, People were 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 crying, you know, like uh, pulling fire alarms on brick and mortar for the last couple of years, and 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 the right, right. the the, the, lo- the diminishing relevance of those in store experiences. I don't think that's ever going to go away, though. I think we've seen time and time again people like having the desire to touch touch the thing, try it out, handle it, but c- customers just want to have both options, right? And so I think it's about optimizing for for both experiences when you can. Certainly, if you start online, you can't just start paying real estate for big stores everywhere, but you can learn about your customer. Uh, you can learn about more about your own brand through those interactions, and then you can figure out how to try new new real-world experiences potentially. And you know, we've seen that work for a lot of brands, and, and we've seen online brands expand into brick-and-mortar successfully, and we've seen the others like struggle with it, and the pandemic didn't, didn't really help. Mm. Um, but I think we'll continue to see a convergence of both worlds, right? And and you know building solutions that that accommodate for that and and allow for that you know support that ebb and flow and that you know the different choices customers are going to want to take at different times in their relationship with the brand I think I think that's really powerful and the most successful ones will find a way to, to sort of acknowledge all those different beats in the user journey. Um, and so you know at the beginning of this conversation you were talking about post TWG looking for kind of a, a, a way to fit into this e-commerce and product kind of ecosystem for yourself. Um, and then, you know, just reflecting on that experience as a kid, the energy of, of that kind of like consumers distributing vibe. Um, you know, where are you at now a few months down the road with the return bear? Like, is it exciting? Are you having fun? Absolutely. I mean, it's hard work, of course. Um, I mean, we're, we're everybody, you know, you, me, I'm sure the people who hopefully watch this included, like everyone's always busy. You're always trying to do good things and do good work. I'm not busy. I'm fulfilled. You're fulfilled. I'm definitely fulfilled too. And I have a little bit more, a few more gray hairs over the last year of startup life. This is only two, three years. This is literally the last three years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, But no, 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 it's great. It's been really fulfilling, you know, for me personally going, you know, spending, you know, 10 plus years in, in consulting for lack of a better term, like agency life, it's been great to sort of wake up every day and try to solve the same problem. And again, there's different facets of the same problem. We're, we're constantly, you know, uh, going through all of the pain points that any growing startup goes through, like doubt, fear, excitement, you know, that the, the you know, parabola or the ebb and flow of those emotional emotions or a roller coaster that, you know, um, you know, I hadn't had for, for several years. So 
it's it's challenging in that respect, but it's extremely fulfilling, and the amount of focus is great, and I get great pleasure from um, from supporting and enabling consumer experiences. I just happen to like it. It's not to say I want everybody to just shop willy nilly, uh, you know, make bad purchases, return them all. Like like I want people to shop smart, right? And I want people to make good decisions, and I want to see more brands grow. And one of the most exciting things, the most fulfilling things, the last 10, 10 or eleven months here with Return Bear. Um, has been like because of the way we're we're trying to build a solution that works for the new brand, the growing brand, and the established brand all all at once, right? And treat them all equally and with the same sort of courtesy and respect. I've been able to meet some some amazing founders that are doing amazing things, and um, uh, you know, from recycling uh, recycling uh, uh, used tires in the Dominican Republic and paying a fair wage to artisans to turn that into footwear, you know. Mm to 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 you know fashion brands that are finding new ways to make uh, make their products here in uh, in Canada you know employing Canadian artisans and uh, and and creating products that have a, a smaller carbon footprint um, that's been brilliant so the exposure to to these other founders that are trying to grow in this same economy that we are like has been has been amazing and you know I hope we can we can support hundreds thousands more of them and and, and see realize more growth especially for Canadian founders for sure you know uh, I'd be thrilled thrilled to achieve that nice man well it was really cool talking about this like journey with return bear and hearing a little bit about how you guys have gotten off to a start um, and uh, and I'm excited to see what comes up in the next few years man it's wicked catching up yeah thanks for having me it's great to be in the space the studio is amazing um, Thank you. the conversations uh, fantastic and I hope I can come back and, and share more updates with you absolutely for sure we'll definitely have you on um, I'm, I'm actually planning an ecom uh, kind of panel discussion for an upcoming uh, edition of Startup Grind because Startup Grind Toronto has now been rebooted here on campus and I'm the chapter director for the city. Awesome. Great to hear. So we'll definitely be in touch about that. Yeah, we'd love to participate. But yeah, always a pleasure to chat. We could talk about this for days. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, man. Thanks so much, Chasm. Of course. Thank you. Take it easy. Wicked.